Lord, we are in awe of your word. And Lord, the journey that you've taken us on through the book of Job has been one where we have been able to see ourselves, Lord, in the suffering that Job is experiencing. And Lord, I know that as I take in uh, the, the people who are gathered here this morning and the kind of trials and suffering that I know has taken place or has taken place in people's lives or is ongoing, that you have been at work ministering and directing and counseling through your word, in particular through the word, words of this book. Now, Lord, as we come to a close, may we continue to humble ourselves before you, continue to be teachable, continue, Lord, to recognize that there's still ways in which you want to direct our hearts through your through your word, in particular, as we come to the end of this book. So, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us, Lord? We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In the world of movies and stories, there is this thing called a cliffhanger. I'm sure you know what it is. It's when... A story or movie leaves the story unresolved and in suspense. When I was growing up, it was experienced by every boy who watched television. Will the dynamic duo be able to weasel their way out of Penguin's snare? Will they be able to save Gotham City from this evil chirping overlord? Have we seen the end of Batman and his boy Wonder? I mean, that's the classic historical cliffhanger, and today you can go on Netflix and binge watch, and at the end of every one of those episodes is a cliffhanger because they want you to come back and watch the next one. So the cliffhanger is meant to, to leave the story unresolved and to stir up in us an excitement and an eagerness for the next episode or the, or the next sequel. But truth be told, we much prefer a story to come to an end having been resolved. There's something about us. It's like if I went on the piano and I played, you know, seven notes and didn't finish out the eighth. Some of you musicians would be sitting in your chair like, and you'd want to get up there and hit that note. There's something about resolve that is part of our nature, our humanity. So here we have this, this mindset of, of resolve. Let me give you some examples just from, from movies and literature. Uh, the story of Cinderella is a classic story of resolve. All these horrible things that happened to her, she's not allowed to, to go to the ball, and of course, all of her animal friends help to work things out so that she can try the slipper on, and she does, and she's found She's able to marry the prince. More recently, my wife and I went and watched Lion King and reminded of, of Simba, who's struggling with his guilty conscience. And he eventually returns home and he rouses up the lions to defeat Scar and the hyenas and put Pride Rock back under its rightful leadership. And maybe you're a Lord of the Rings fan, and you understand 
when Frodo had his finger bitten off by Gollum, who falls into the fire of Mordor with the ring, and Sauron is defeated. And then for 45 minutes, they resolve everything. All the hobbits go back to the Shire, right? You're just journeying. You're like, all right, well, you just wind this thing up. But for 45 minutes, we, we just watched everything kind of make itself right again. Because that's part of what makes the story attractive and beautiful. And friends, there's nothing different happening in this story of Job, a real story, a true story about a, a historic man. We've been sitting with him for eight months now. Can you believe it? Eight months. The storm has come to Job's righteous and perfect life. That's how he is described. And he has had to face this terrible trial, losing children, possessions, health, and reputation on the grandest of scales. And he had to endure hours, we would assume, days of foolish talk from his three friends. And it all looked hopeless. And then another young man comes along, Elihu, very arrogant, very angry, but he actually offers Job some direction and some counsel that prepares him for what's next, and that is to hear from God. And when God speaks, he speaks in two speeches, if you remember, and he comes not giving answers to Job, but asking questions and demanding answers of Job. Job, of course, we know, wasn't suffering because of his sin. He was suffering because of his faith. But in his suffering, he did sin. And so we find, as we did last week, that Job finally listens to God. He humbles himself before God. He confesses his sin, and he repents. Not confessing of sin before his suffering, because there was no sin that caused his suffering, but confessing the sin that took place in his suffering. And so Job then is resolved in his relationship with God, but there's still more that needs to take place. And now we come to this epilogue, the end of the story, verses 7 through 17. And you notice it's in narrative form. So we have the first two chapters that are in narrative form, and we have the end here that's in narrative form. And so the the narrator is telling us now not only how the story began, but also how it's going to end. And what we have here from a structural perspective is verse 7, a reprimand, verses 8 and 9, reconciliation, and verses 10 through 17, restoration for Job. And it is the resolution of the story of Job. And just as there is resolution for Job, so there is resolution for all of God's suffering servants. And friends, this is what we want to see as we walk our way through this text, that there is resolution for God's suffering servants. Now, it's not always going to be exactly like Job, but if we are serving a sovereign God, there is resolution with him. And we need to recognize that, and we're going to see that unfold. It comes by embracing perseverance. It comes by recognizing God's purposes in our lives. It comes by virtue of trusting God's promises. And so to make sense of this end of the book, this epilogue, and to kind of 
grasp a perspective that Scripture has itself about the book of Job, we need to go to James chapter 5 and verse 11 and allow Scripture to direct us and to guide us about what is taking place here. So James chapter 5 and verse 11 says this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And friends, we're going to allow this text to kind of guide us through this epilogue. And I think it's important then to go back and to, to again, hear what James is saying. He's speaking the greater context about patience. And then he uses Job as an example. Again, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purposes or purpose of the Lord how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So this morning, let's begin by considering the, per, the, the perseverance of Job. Now, a lot of people have learned James 5.11 from the King James Version. And in fact, in the King James Version, it says, you have heard of the patience of Job. And the problem is, as we study Job, one thing that we know that Job is not, is what? Is not patient. You say, well, is the King James wrong? No, the King James isn't wrong. You have an issue of choosing a word that best reflects a Greek word. In fact, the, the New American, some of you use that, says you have heard of the endurance of Job. Well, that's a little bit different. Okay? And we use the English Standard Version, which says you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. All of them are trying to translate a Greek word, hupomeno, which means, as it relates to your relationship with God, that uh, you are to wait on God, you are to cling to him. As it relates to the relationship with the world, you are to endure, you are to stand fast, you are to bear patiently. So it might be better to put the word patient and endure together, to say that Job patiently endure, which is the sense then of how the ESV is translating it. He was steadfast in the face of struggle and opposition. He is a man who in the face of his trial and suffering persevered. He struggled with patience, but proved to be faithful in spite of his struggle. So what did Job have to endure? Well, if you remember from the story, he had to endure suffering. And I have a number of ways that he did that. Of course, we are mindful of this. We've talked about it a lot. The loss of children, the loss of a wife, the loss of possessions, the loss of reputation, the loss of health. Now, friends, these things have been repeated over and over again as we've gone through the book of Job to the point that they may not have the same impact that they did at the beginning. So just pause for a moment and take in the heaviness of the loss that Job has experienced. Job suffered terribly. We don't just want to joke around and say, you know, he had a really bad day. Because he did have a really bad day. But it was far worse than a day that you and I could even imagine. Some people lose families. 
in a moment, car accident, things like that. Some people lose all their possessions. Some people lose their own health, even reputation. In the context of what's going on here, this is kind of like a full-blown bad day. It was devastating. And that's why Job in chapter 3 in his lament just wants to die. He wishes he was never born. So Job certainly had to endure suffering. He also had to endure scoffing. From his wife, who said, curse God and die. From his friends, when Job would not listen to their counsel or embrace their theological conclusions, they began to, to, to be upset with him and angry with him. And then from onlookers, either people who had heard about Job or who had just kind of looking or, or listening to what's going on, we're told in the book of Job a couple of times that, that his name became a byword. That means a word that is synonymous with someone who is suffering because of sin. So he was having to endure this kind of scoffing. And so remaining steadfast or persevering in the face of scoffing, friends, is one of the most difficult things to do. You might say, well, I can, I can, I can you know, figure out my own suffering, my health and that kind of stuff, but when you have people that are mocking and saying things about you and against you, boy, you just want to crawl into a hole. I mean, just on a human level, it's really hard to face that. So there's suffering, there's scoffing, there's also silence. And this, of course, is one of the, one of the challenges in the book of Job, is that he's crying out to God from chapter 3 all the way on, in his discussion with his friends, saying, I just want an audience with God. I just want him to speak. I just want him to vindicate what's going on. And so for 34 chapters, we have to wait until God finally breaks into the story and speaks to Job. Now, how many speeches did Job make? I went back and counted. He makes 10 speeches over the course of, well, which would include 20 chapters. So 20 chapters of Job is just Job speaking to his friends primarily, okay? He's just speaking. And he's crying out to God, and he's saying, I want to hear from you. And in that, when he was not hearing from God, he said some harsh things about God, but then at the same time, he would look to God for help. So he was kind of wrestling here in his faith, in his suffering, in that moment. But his faith was shaken, but it wasn't destroyed in the midst of that circumstance. Now, friends, there's something that we need to understand that the Bible teaches, and that is this, that true believers will persevere to the end. We call this the perseverance of the saints. They may wobble. They may struggle with fear. They may even crash at times, but they will get up. Yet there are some who appear to believe, but who will eventually turn away from the faith. They won't persevere, and their lack of perseverance will prove that they were never actually in the faith. That's what Scripture teaches. Job persevered. He proved that he did not serve God for what God gave him. See? This was the accusation that Satan brought. The only reason that Job is living this way is because of the things that you're giving him. But Job proves that 
that he is worshiping God, not because of stuff and not because of health, but because he is worthy, because of who God is. And although he cried and complained and refused to renounce God, instead he said these things, just pulling from the text now that we've read, though he slay me, what? Yet will I trust in him. And when you understand the story of Job and you understand the, the, the statement of, of faith and confidence in God that is coming through Job, that is an incredibly powerful statement. Then he says, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. And he knows and he's confident that there is one who will speak for him. And then he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth. A future-looking, powerful statement about a Redeemer, a mediator, a, an advocate. William Barclay reminds us, the very greatness of Job lies in the fact that in spite of everything which tore at his heart, he never lost his grip on faith and his grip on God. Job's faith is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. Friends, that's really important for us to realize. Because sometimes we can say, I've, I've been questioning God so much that God wants nothing to do with me anymore. And yet God recognizes that our struggle, our questioning is all part of that sanctification. It's all part of that faith wrestling with what God is choosing to bring in our lives. So we recognize then that Job was a man of perseverance, and that's why James uses him as an example. But also we want to know there, not only the, the, the perseverance of Job, but the purpose of God. So James chooses to describe God's character now in dealing with Job as marked by compassion and mercy. Did you catch that? Now, what, what words would you describe about God in his relationship with Job in this story? I think some people would say silence, distant, aloof. Those were things that Job was feeling. Or that God is harsh, or that he's spiteful, or he's unloving. But James speaks into the story by identifying two attributes of God that give us an awareness of the character of God and the attitude of God and the purposes of God in Job's life. And they are compassion and they are mercy. That might come as a surprise to you. But it helps us understand then that sometimes our view of God is wrong. When we look at the circumstance, that God is actually doing good, and he is for us. And we must never forget the unique character of the God we serve. He is a mighty, all-powerful, all-knowing and God, and he's present everywhere. He is pure, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just. He is loving, he's gracious, he's kind, and he's good. And he's a God of compassion and mercy. And that is why, then, God, first of all, at the end here, humbles Job. He humbles Job because he is taking Job somewhere. This is what we saw last week. 
Job, first of all, is admiring God for who he is. After God revealed himself and showed him his creation, both the physical as well as the spiritual, and said, I am sovereign over it all. And he desires through this humility, this humbling of Job, to reveal Job's ignorance, to reveal Job's arrogance, and to stress Job's utter dependence on him to know what is going on and to be in control of it. It is compassionate and it is merciful for God to say to Job, stop fighting, stop complaining, I've got it, it will be okay, trust me, lean on me, rest in me. Those are words of compassion. And those are words of a parent to a child who doesn't understand. It's going to be okay, son. Just hold my hand. I'm close. I'm here. I know it looks daunting. I know you're struggling. But it will be okay. Not only does God humble Job, but now we get into our text, God vindicates Job. What's screaming from this text now is what Job has longed for, and that is for vindication, for God to speak and to say, Job was actually right. And so we see, first of all, a reprimand. Let's look at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Now stop a second. Is it a good thing to be on the end of these words? Usually if someone's on the end of these words, it's not going to be a pretty picture. And yet... He says, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Vindication. So what is it that God reprimands Job's friends for? Why is he so angry with them? Ultimately, it is for their false witness, their false teaching, and their poor doctrine. If you remember, they had this this doctrine that, that taught that the reason people suffer is because of sin. The reason people are blessed is because of their righteousness. These were just kind of like rooted ideas from a distant God who didn't really interact much with his people. These are just the rules of the universe. So we worship God, but these are the rules we function by. And God is coming back and saying, no, 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 no. You don't understand this because Job didn't suffer because of his sin. He suffered because of his faith. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. These friends were not correct in their doctrine of God. Job got his facts right. Even in his struggle, even in his, his wobbling, he still understood the character of God. We might think that God's rebuke is harsh since Job's friends seem to be right in some of their insights into God's nature and character throughout the debate. But God is clear in this text. They are in error, and it is such a serious error that he is angry with them. Now, friends, hear this. God is always angry when he is misrepresented. 
God is not in favor of a weak gospel. He's not in favor of a weak caricature of who he is. He is not for the church saying, let's soften up the message somewhat because people can't handle the truth about who God is. No, people don't understand the truth unless they understand the full character of God, that he is holy and that he is just and that because of that, he will exercise wrath. But the good news is, although we are all deserving of that, he has a plan. And that plan is in his son. And so God loves the world by providing a mediator in the person of Jesus Christ who will satisfy the demands that God has for our sin. And so the wrath that we deserve is put on the shoulders of Christ. But you're not going to understand that unless you understand the true character of God. I know, Gateway here, we know this. But it's worth reminding ourselves that it's so important that God is angry when he is misrepresented. He's not like, oh, okay, they just, they're just, you know, they're just concerned, holding back a little bit. No, no, no. We must preach the full orb character of God as he is revealed in his word. And we must believe it. And there may be some things that we struggle with. Okay, we can struggle. But our struggle doesn't mean that it's not true. God says it in his word. We need to figure out, seek to understand how that can be true. Friends, this text is shouting at us that it's not sufficient to have some generally nice thoughts about God and his creation. Those, of course, are good, but we must press on to study the true character and the ways of God. American Christian culture, in my estimation, has become flabby in its theological fitness. And as a result, Christians are questioning their faith because what they have been taught and what they believed is a very shallow understanding of God and his ways. When I first came to California in 2004 to pastor a church, I had a conversation with someone who said this, what we need is not more theology, but to be relevant. Now, in, in, in that time, relevance was like the key word. Everyone wanted to be relevant. We've got to find ways to, to be relevant. So don't, don't preach at us. Don't give us you know, theology. Connect with us. You're right. Be relevant. But it was a perceived relevance that was typically void of theology. And it opened up doors to all sorts of mystical and experiential approaches to discipleship that fell woefully short of the demands of Scripture. And friends, the truth was, and still is, that without carefully thought through theology, one cannot be relevant. If you're presenting only half of the gospel, the good bits of the gospel, you will not be relevant because you do not have a accurate understanding of God and his wrath and how he is just in exercising his wrath on that sin or to understand what the gospel actually is. We must, we must, we must emphasize that relevance comes through carefully thought through theology. You can't, you know, you can't wrench relevance 
away from theology. It is theology that provides the vehicle for relevance. The Word of God doesn't have to be made relevant. It is relevant. We just need to make sure we're seeing how it's relevant. And so many of you can attest to this. As we got through the book of Job, you're like, I had no idea that this chapter of poetry would actually speak to my heart in my suffering in the way that it has. Why? Because most people ignore it. Can't handle poetry, so we're going to skip over that. That's why we have a flabby church, friends, and we want to make sure that we're not flabby spiritually. We can be flabby in other areas, but not spiritually, all right? So listen, God has revealed himself in creation, and that's good, and that's right, but he has revealed himself more clearly and perfectly and completely in the pages of his word, and to that end, we want to make sure we are mining it, and we're seeing God for who he truly is. Now hear this, be careful not to listen to people who claim an experience of going to heaven or having a certain kind of dream or a certain kind of vision as if this is new information. The word of God is sufficient, and the word of God is the means by which the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and teaches us who God is, what he has done, and how we are to live. It is relevant. Now, not only is there a reprimand, there's also reconciliation. Verses 8 through 9, let's read those verses. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Isn't it interesting that twice God says, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. I just want you to notice, first of all, that Job was able to forgive those who opposed him and to hold no bitterness or to bear any grudges toward them. They went to Job, and Job then stands as their mediator. Remember, this is something that Job was crying out for for him. And yet now, he is standing as a mediator between God and his friends. This is quite a turning of the tables. This is face-to-face vindication with those who were saying, no, Job, you are suffering because of some secret sin. My friends, there's a clear picture of the gospel here of Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man who ever lives to make intercession for the sins of his people by continually presenting the blood of his sacrifice to the Father for propitiation. That's a mouthful of things there. But you get the point. And isn't it interesting that in the narrative at the beginning, what is one of the things that Job is doing faithfully? He's offering up sacrifices on behalf of his children because they might have sinned. (laughs) And now at the end, he's offering up sacrifices on behalf of his friends to bring reconciliation 
and forgiveness. Friends, this is wonderful vindication for Job. But he's not arrogant about it. There's nothing in the text that tells us he's saying, yeah, see? (laughs) That's not it at all. He's humble. He has been reconciled to God. And there's this forgiveness and further reconciliation taking place. And then there is this this restoration. God restores, restores Job. He restores his fortunes. Look, look at verses 10 through 16, or through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and showed him, plenty, showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 10,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Look down at verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years. After this, he lived 140 years. And he saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. So when it talks about God restored his fortunes. He's not just talking about his finances. He's talking about blessing that God graciously gives. There's there's basically five areas we can summarize here. His faith. This is what we've seen as Job stands in his position as priest over his family and his friends. He is restored Job and his friends to his friends. He has restored Job's family. I don't know if you caught this in there. We didn't read all of it. But first of all, his new family. Seven sons and three daughters. And the text emphasizes the fame and reputation of daughters. Jemima speaks of dove-like qualities. There's a name you don't hear too much anymore. You think about naming a child? Here's a good one, right? How about this one? Keziah. It's a beautiful name. And it's really talking about a certain kind of cinnamon. It represents charm and fragrance. And then this Karen Hapuk, that's a a black powder that is used to decorate the eyes and points to attractiveness. So we can say here, this all reveals to us that his daughters were famous for their character, their charm, and their beauty. So his extended family also rises up. You notice that? My question when his, his extended family comes is like, where, where were you? Now they realize that they should have come. And you know, I thought to myself, how many times have people been in trouble and difficulty and maybe I haven't stepped in or I haven't showed up? or We come up with all sorts of different reasons, don't we? His finances... I mean, illustrated by sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys. Today's world, it would be, you know, finances, houses, Harley Davidsons, and a set of golf clubs, right? It's just different. But God restores, and we're told he restores twofold, twice as many as what he had before. But then I want to focus in here at the end, because I'm calling it his fullness. 
By fullness, I mean to address his health, his vitality, his legacy for another 140 years. This man is, is healthy, right? He's bearing children, right? He's raising a family for the fourth generation. And a legacy that has impacted and affected the children of God for a thousand years. Verse 17, and Job died an old man and full of days. I mean, isn't that what you would like to say about yourself? Old man, old woman, full of days. Now, in our, in our view, that's what, you know, the perfect life would be. But sometimes that perfect life means going through times of suffering and trial. It was in Job's day, in his situation. Now, we must be careful that we don't demand and expect the kind of physical blessing that Job received to be on the back end of our suffering. We're not Job. We don't have his character or his reputation. But as God's children, we can be confident that God's blessing is always a fruit of his providential grace, especially when we face trials. That's why James, in the, book of, in the beginning of his book, says, Count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds because we know that God is at work, often in ways we don't understand or can't comprehend. As we sung this morning, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. I mean, do you think that Job, in chapter 3 on the ash heap, has any awareness of what's going to happen at the end of the story? No, he just wants to die. And sometimes, friends, we need to recognize that the example of Job is not a guarantee of earthly blessing, health, and financial prosperity, as some people preach and teach. It is an example of God's blessing bestowed on his children as he, God, sees fit. Sometimes that results in earthly abundance, but most importantly, it results in spiritual health and well-being as well as spiritual influence and legacy. And friends, let me ask you a couple of questions. Would you rather your children and grandchildren press on in life with an abundance of riches, or would you prefer that they live modest lives shaped and fashioned by Christ in them the hope of glory? What's the answer? Well, if you're a faithful follower of Christ, you know it's the latter. Stuff is stuff can't take it to heaven with you. Spiritual growth and character. Now that's where it's at, friends. And we might need to be shaken up a little bit as far as our our American prosperity is concerned and how we steer our children and what's most important. Nothing wrong with finances, nothing wrong with, with stuff, but it all needs to be anchored in God's purposes for my life. So the story of Job is saying to us, health, wealth, and prosperity are not the answer or the goal. God is. And if you are blessed to have good health, the question is, what are you doing with it? And if you are blessed with wealth, the question is, how are you investing it for the kingdom? And if you are blessed with prosperity of any kind, the question is, how are you stewarding it for God's glory? All of it, friends, your health, your wealth, and your prosperity can be gone in a moment. 
And all you will have left is God. And he will be enough. The purposes of God, to humble, to vindicate, and to restore Job. But then we want to move into the promise of Christ. You see, James 5 reveals to us both Job's perseverance and God's purpose, but it also reveals to us Christ's promise because a little earlier, as James is beginning to talk about patience in verse 7, he says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You see, there's a future looking there in James, and he's helping us understand that there's something happening in Job that we need to pay attention to. In other words, Job is an example of many whom James has used to kind of paint his picture of patience, and James is using Job as an example of patience in the anticipation of the Lord's coming. So friends, it's important for us to, to, to remind ourselves that there's something happening in the book of Job that is somehow helping us get to Christ. And let's just think through that a little bit. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. You may know this, you may not, but I want to make sure we're anchoring what we're about to say in God's greater word, speaking back here into the Old Testament. So we're in Luke chapter 24 and verses 25 through 27, let me set this up. This is after the resurrection. And we have two disciples that are traveling along the Emmaus Road after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus meets them on the road, but they were prevented from recognizing him. And they begin to tell this stranger all the things that had happened in Jerusalem. About Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet. How the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be sentenced to death how he was crucified, and how after he was buried, some women went to his tomb to anoint his body, but they could not find it. And they, instead, they saw an angel who said that he was alive and he had risen from the dead. And then Jesus speaks. And this is what he says. Again, still a stranger. And he says this. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, or to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now we talk about a sermon that we would love to hear. But this also gives us a window into understanding that the Old Testament is screaming things to us about the coming Messiah. And so what we want to recognize here is that Job, being a part of that scripture that Jesus is talking about, we call it the Old Testament, but Job was a book in that Old Testament, and therefore we want to look for clues in our text that have been strategically placed by the author of this book that are meant to draw our attention to the fact that there is something more going on in this story. You with me there? So we're going to now look at a few of the passages, both in the prologue and the epilogue, and I want you to see if you can identify the word. And you'll see it because I have it highlighted for you, so I'll help you along, all right? So get this. Job 1.8 
And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Chapter 2, verse 3. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now in the epilogue, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job had. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt a, a, a offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Any idea what is screaming at us from these texts? Of course, it's the expression my servant Job, twice in the prologue, four times in the epilogue. God and the author of this book have chosen to refer to Job as my servant. Now it's true that that expression, my servant, can simply refer to a master-slave relationship. We find that in the Old Testament. Sarah and Hagar would be one example of that. It's also true um, in particular, in the New Testament, the followers of Christ are often referred to as faithful servants, as it would be in the parable of the tenants. But it is also an expression of God's chosen servant, the Messiah. And to that end, it is used sparingly in the Old Testament and is purposely connected to key figures such as Jacob or Israel, Moses and David. It is also central to Isaiah's prophecy in 11 chapters, chapter 42 through 53, that are known as the servant songs. And in the Gospels, this servant, this suffering servant, is the one that we know to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, brings it all together for us. Because he says there, For even the Son of Man came not to, to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this servant is also one who suffers. Now, having said all that, let's just remember then, first of all, he is identified as my servant. But then also that my servant suffers. Now let me know if what I'm about to say sounds familiar. There was once a righteous man. This man, by God's set purpose, was handed over to satanic inflicted sufferings. This man in his suffering was mocked and mistreated. This man prayed for his enemies, for those who persecuted him. This man, after a costly, perfect, substitutionary blood sacrifice, became a priestly mediator between God and sinners. This man was fully and publicly vindicated by God. This man, in the end, was exalted, receiving honor and glory and power and wealth, even seemingly to a greater extent than which he first had. You see what's going on? We are to consider God's righteous and imperfect servant, Job, 
in order to prepare us to see God's righteous, perfect servant, Jesus, his very own son. Doug O'Donnell, a commentator, presses this further. He says, to put it plainly, the narrative of Job prepares us mentally and spiritually for the master or meta-narrative of Jesus. To put it boldly, the primary purpose of the book of Job is to prepare us for Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore the story of Job, and that we just are looking for Jesus in every passage and you're just saying, oh, this is a picture of Jesus. No, we, we understand Job and his suffering for who he is, but we understand that there are things that are, that are preparing us and pointing us and directing us to understand that there is someone that this is pointing to that helps us comprehend who this someone is. The servant stands in place of the people before God, bringing a sacrifice of atonement, consecration and offering, and praying for God's mercy and grace. And many times in the book of Job, there have been themes which have come uh, into clearer focus and rich color in the life and suffering, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. To the point that the apostle Peter then would say this. For this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. My servant suffers. And oh, did he suffer. Job's suffering was great. But the suffering that Jesus experienced, and by that I do not mean pierced hands, pierced feet. It's all part of crucifixion. It wasn't so much the crucifixion that was the incredible suffering that Jesus experienced. It was the bearing of the wrath of God while hanging on that cross. Now friends, I wanna bring this to a close. Sadly, <laughs> because I've loved our time in the book of Job, but there's some concluding thoughts that I wanna just, just kind of remind you of and give you some perspective with. First of all, Let's understand this, that suffering is real. Suffering has come and will come to all of us sooner or later. Some suffering is expected. Death, dying, struggle there. Some suffering is unexpected. Sickness, finances, loss of people you love, tragedies. It's painful, it's full of heartache, it's often beyond our ability to cope. And friends, we must be careful that we don't downplay our struggle and suffering and its forcefulness when we are in its grip. Suffering is real. And so when we come to church and we ask each other, so how are you doing today? And you know in your heart, you are struggling. You know in your heart, you're suffering. You know in your heart, 
you're burdened and you say, everything's fine. That's all good. Yeah, I'm all right. You're among the very people that God has brought into your life that you should be sharing that struggle with. It is not spiritual to say, I'm just going to hold it to myself. It'll be okay. I can handle it. I'll do this alone. Spiritual people ask for help because spiritual people recognize that we need people to intercede for us by virtue of prayer. And so we ask for help. And we're honest. That doesn't mean we come in as like, oh no, here comes the woe is me person again. I'm not talking about that. But there's a genuineness when someone's you know, asking you, how are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm really struggling. A couple of people asked me that this morning. I knew what I was going to say, so I had to be honest. Right? I got up this morning and the whole world just started spinning. I've been suffering with vertigo. So if you, if you see me kind of wobble up here, that's okay. If I'm wobbling with my theology, not okay. But if I'm wobbling physically, it's okay. But you understand. Suffering is real. Secondly, Satan is real. He's just not a storybook creature. He is real. And you may not see him. But he is working behind the scenes. Trying to do everything he can to upset the purposes of God. And he does that by somehow coming along and intervening and causing struggle, in particular among God's people. And in doing that, he's seeking to sow doubts in our hearts and to draw us away from trusting that God is truly good. So beware, be alert, don't be deceived. But I would say don't panic too. Why? Because here's the next thing. God's sovereignty is real. I mean, Satan's a daunting person, part of God's creation, seeking to rebel, and yet God is completely sovereign. Is that not what God showed Job? Here's Behemoth, and here's Leviathan. You think the, 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 the world of the supernatural is somehow out of control? No, I have it all under control. That is true of Satan, too. Yes, suffering is real, and so is Satan, but God is sovereign over it all, and so we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done and and what he is doing, that he's good and he's completely aware and in control. So don't settle for a shallow view of God. Dig deeper and seek to understand him in a fuller and more profound way and constantly be asking yourself, What does this passage teach me about God? God's sovereignty is real. Number four, the Savior is real. Jesus, the suffering servant, understands the temptation that you're facing and what it means to suffer, and he is also your Savior. So his suffering is the means of your reconciliation and vindication. The gospel is not something that you have to do. It's been done. You stand on it. You stand in it. Right? You find your satisfaction because of it. 
And he stands as your advocate, your mediator, and your redeemer before the Father in the courtroom scene. And he is constantly saying, my blood covers that. My blood covers that. My blood covers that. He is the one in whom we put our faith and trust. The Savior is real. You see there's a logical flow going on here, right? We move from suffering to Satan to God's sovereignty to the Savior And that moves us then to understand even what we're going through, and that is this, that your sanctification is real. That God is at work through your suffering, even Satan's influence on you. He's sovereign over that. You are one of his children, and yet he is using all of these circumstances to grow you into maturity, to shape you by these things with his word so that Young, immature believers are growing to become strong, mature believers, and we are all, if we're followers of Christ, somewhere in that process. That's why James 1, 2 through 4 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so, friends, with all these things in mind, suffering is real, Satan is real, God's sovereignty is real, the Savior is real, and your sanctification is real, know this, steadfastness is possible. (laughs) We anchor ourselves in God and his purposes, recognizing all these things that are happening to us, and we say with Job, we are going to put our face toward the God that we know that we love, that sometimes we don't understand, but we're going to hold on to him by faith. And with his help and with his strength, we endure, we persevere, we remain steadfast for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. So many people in this room, myself included, have needed this book, have needed counsel to help us anticipate or gain perspective on the suffering that we're going through or that we will be going through. And Lord, you have allowed us during this time to develop a healthy theology of suffering so that we can understand our frailties but at the same time understand who you are. And Lord, we're reminded that you never did give Job an answer, that you gave him something more important than that, and that was yourself. And so Lord, as we go through difficult times, sometimes, Lord, we are gonna have the ability to connect dots. At other times, Lord, it's just not gonna make any sense, but in all of that, we have the confidence that we have you So Lord, teach us to nestle into you, to see that you are our great God and Savior, and that you are working your plan even through our suffering to prepare us for eternity, and Lord, to glorify your name. Strengthen us, empower us now with this book, we pray in your name, amen.